Grace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to the Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. What is the Encyclopedia Challenge, you may ask? That is a great question. The Encyclopedia Challenge is where I read the encyclopedia to you. So if you're interested in words and the encyclopedia and you've ever wanted to read the entire encyclopedia but don't have the time, well, you're in luck because that is what I'm doing for you. I am reading the encyclopedia so you don't have to. And uh, we are reading from two different ones. Uh, we're reading from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And let me tell you, we are doing great. Um, about a quarter of a way uh, through uh, the encyclopedia, the first encyclopedia. We're still on A's, and that's okay. Um, I think there are two uh, books for the letter A, and uh, we're on the first one. Uh, but if you've missed any of the uh, podcasts, uh, please go to theoaktreejourneys.com, and there you'll find not only a list of the words if you select Encyclopedia Challenge, but also a link uh, to the YouTube clips and to the uh, two podcast links. Um, there's also a page called, called Podcast Links that you can click on. Um, now I am trying something new. Last month, um, I had a quote. Uh, if you're on YouTube, uh, I had a quote on my blackboard from Elon Musk. Well, this month, I decided to put a quote by Pope. I don't have a first name. It was just listed as Pope in my book. I've got, a, I've got two or three books uh, just full of quotes. Um, but this one says, for those of you listening on the podcast, strength of mind is exercise, not rest. And I just really like that quote. Strength of mind is exercise, not rest. And that was by Pope. Um, so I, what I'm going to try to do is every month have a different quote up. Uh, not every single week, um, but just at least every month I'll, I'll try to have a new one. Uh, so I'm very excited. Um, I've got... Four words. I'm almost ready for the bonus podcast challenge uh, where we do a deep dive uh, with five or more words. And if someone, uh, actually a couple of people said they wanted to give me a word. They haven't sent it to me yet, um, but they were going to send it to me sometime this weekend. So I'm very, very excited about it. And if you want to know what our bonus words are, just go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select on bonus videos or or bonus, I can't remember exactly what I've got it called, um, but just select bonus, and under bonus two, it'll show you which four words we have so far. Okay, and let's go ahead and get into it. I'm very excited. Uh, last week, we stopped at the word actium, and as I was looking over my list today, uh, I, know, I noticed that I skipped a name on my list. Now, not in last week's podcast, but on my list for today. Um, I skipped Acton John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg. And let me tell you, his name is almost as long as his entry. Um, but I almost skipped him, and I'm glad I double-checked my list. Um, otherwise, he would not have made it today. <laughs> um, but we're going to start with a person's name, um, Acton. And that's Acton, John Emmerich. Edward Dahlberg. He was a baron and a historian. 
So that would be John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton. And he was born in Naples in 1834, January 10th, and he died in Bavaria of 1902, June 19th. He was educated under Dr. Afterward Cardinal Wiseman at Ascot College in England and at Munich under Ignatius von Dollinger, whose friend and adherent he remained throughout life. He was returned to the Parliament for Carlo in 1859 and for Bridge North of 1865, but was unseated on a scrutiny of the vote. Created a peer, Baron Acton of Aldenham, in 1869 by Gladstone, whose trusted friend and advisor he was. A strong liberal in politics and religion, he founded the, quote, Home and Foreign Review, end quote, 1862 to 1864, in the interest of the liberal Catholic party, and adopted the home rule idea before Gladstone himself. At the... I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so we'll, I'll just do the best I can. At the Usmanical, or is that Esmanical Council in Rome of 1870, he vigorously opposed the dogma of papal infability. From 1895 to 1902, he held the office of Regis Professor at Modern History at Cambridge University, a scholar of wide and vast. In addition, his passion for acquiring knowledge seemed to act as a check upon his productive powers. No modern man of such first-rate abilities have, has left so few literary productions by which posterity may judge of those abilities. That's a little harsh, isn't it? <laughs> Between 1868 and 1890, he gave to the press a few historical essays and anonymous letters, and in 1895 he published a lecture on the study of history. In 1882, he planned a comprehensive history of liberty, but never carried out the design. His university lectures were models of narrative, fullness of thought, and flawless exactitude of statement. The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1 of 1902, was planned and outlined by him. So there we go. Now, that's our first entry for this week. Shows John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton. Okay, our second name, uh, which is who I was going to start with before I realized, oh, I missed, missed someone, um, is listed in both the 1909 and the 1956 encyclopedias. Um, I'm not going to read both, but I will let you know that in the 1956 version, this man is titled a sir. So he's, he's actually a sir. But in the 1909 one, he is not. Uh, they, I don't know why uh, they didn't put sir in here. Uh, it may be in the entry, but it's not listed as part of his name. So we have Acton John Francis Edward. That's how he's listed in the 1909. In the 1956, he's listed as Acton Sir John Francis Edward. Okay, let's find out who he was. He was a Prime Minister of Ferdinand IV of Naples, and he was born in 1736 and died in 1811, born Besancon and died in Palremo, son of a physician. 
After serving in the Tuscan Navy, he entered the Neapolitan service and became the favorite of Queen Caroline. He soon became commander-in-chief by both land and sea, and ultimately prime minister. He improved the roads and ports, but excited great discontent by the consequent taxation and the positions given to foreigners. In 1793, he formed a league between Nepal, Naples, Austria, and England against France. In 1798, the French victories forced him to fly with the royal family to Sicily, and the Parthenopean Republic was, was formed. Five months later, they were back, and he, with a, quote, junta of state, end quote, instituted a reign of terror, sending many to the prison or the block. In 1804, he was removed at French demand, and in 1806, when the French entered Naples, he was obliged to take refuge in Sicily again, where he died with the ill will of all parties. Actually, I changed my mind. After reading this, I do want to see what the 1956 version has to say. So let's switch over to uh, the Encyclopedia Americana and see if they've got any other, uh, any, anything else to say about him. Because let's just take a look. So Acton Sir John Francis Edward, English officer in the service of Tuscany and Naples, born Bessicon, France, in 1736, died Polar. Palermo, Sicily, August 12, 1811. He entered the Tuscan Navy and in 1775 commanded a frigate in the operations of Tuscany and Spain against Algiers. His daring exploits in covering the withdrawal of the fleet attracted the notice of Maria Carolina, Queen Consort of Naples and the two Sicilies, and in 1779 she persuaded her brother, Grand Duke Leopold I of Tuscany, to lend Acton to her reorganization to reorganize the Neapolitan Navy. Becoming her prime favorite, he was given command of both the Navy and the Army and served as Minister of Finance and eventually Prime Minister. In 1793, he collaborated with Sir William Hamilton from 1730 to 1803, British ambassador, ambassador to Naples, in securing Austrian and British help in preference to that of Spain. This aroused the opposition of France, and after the French victories in 1798, he was forced to fly with the royal family to Sicily. Five months later, following the downfall of the Parthenopean Republic, they returned to Naples, and he instituted a reign of terror, sending many to prison or the block. At French demand, he was temporarily removed from office in 1804, and when the French entered Naples in 1806, he was obliged once more to take refuge in Sicily. He was the grandfather of the first Baron Acton. So there we go. We got a little bit more information, but they both describe uh, him as as uh, contributing or instituting a reign of terror. So I was kind of I was curious about that. I was curious to see if if uh, the 1956 had the same wording as that. And yeah, it, it totally did. Um, but we did get a little bit more information. Okay, so let's go on to the third name, and that's Acton Thomas Coxon, or Thomas Coxon Acton, who was an American financier and public official. He was born in New York City in 1823 on February 23rd and died there in 1898. He was a leading banker and in early years was assistant to the county clerk and deputy, re deputy register. From 1860 to 1869, Metropolitan Police Commissioner, from 1862 to 1869, 
president of the board. During the draft riots of July 1863, he commanded the entire police force in person for a week, rendering rendering highly valuable service. He was superintendent of the United States Assay Office from 1870 to 1882 and assistant treasurer of the United States at New York from 1882 to 1886. He was always an active agent in administrative and social reforms in the city carried through against bitter opposition the creation of a paid fire department and assisted in founding the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Oh, that's that's good. I'm so glad. And the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Even better. He declined a nomination for mayor. That is fantastic. So, so remember that name. Thomas Coxon Acton. We have him to thank, uh, at least in New York, for creating... Two very, very important things. The prevention of cruelty to animals and prevention of cruelty to children. And uh, let's go to the Encyclopedia Americana now for, looks like, two entries. Um, The first entry we're going to look at is Acts of Congress. So Acts of Congress in the 1956 Encyclopedia Americana says, The two branches of the United States Congress are coordinate, In legislative power, the bills passed by either being subject to the absolute veto veto of the other. The only exclusive power possessed by either house was the provision that all bills for raising revenue should originate in the House of Representatives. But this power has practically been nullified by the unrestrained freedom of amending such bills which the Constitution gives to the Senate. In one case, this freedom was exercised to the extent of placing 872 amendments in a single House bill and of eliminating everything but the enacting clause and substituting a new bill. Annually, many thousands of bills and resolutions are introduced by the senators and representatives. These are then referred to the proper committees for consideration and, if worthy of presentation and action by Congress, are introduced for debate. While the Congressional Committee system is crude, it performs excellent work in killing off worthless bills. Uh, Not lately, but my comment there. Uh, When a bill has been passed by either house, it is sent to the other for action. If if passed by that branch, the enrolled copy, signed by the President of the Senate and the Speaker of the House, is sent to the President. If he sign it or allow it to become a law, it takes effect at the time designated in the bill. But if he veto it, then it must be passed by a two-thirds vote of those present in both houses before it can become a law without his signature. If the bill failed to receive the two-thirds vote, it is then a nullity and has no effect. See Bills, Course of, and Bills, comma, Private. All acts of Congress for each session are edited, printed, and published by authority of Congress under the, under the discretion of the Secretary of State and the statutes at large. All acts of Congress remaining in force December 1, 1873, were codified in 1874 in the Revised Statutes, and from time to time successive volumes of supplementary acts have been issued. The criminal laws of the United States were codified in 1912. So that's something very important to know about um, as part of the history of the United States and and how our government works. And our fifth word, um, or fifth entry... Um, is Acts of Hostility, and this is from the 1956, uh, the Encyclopedia Americana. 
Actions of one nation against another signifying its intention to impose its will by force, not always physical. Acts of hostility may be of a diplomatic, commercial, civil, or military character. An ultimatum delivered by one nation to another, whose terms are so harsh as to be utterly unacceptable, may be termed an act of hostility in a diplomatic sense. The blockade of a country's ports against food supplies is an act of hostility in a commercial sense, though not a shot may be fired. A military act of hostility usually involves actual invasion. And of course, this was pre-virus era. Uh, right, and let's go to number six. And we'll, for that one, for that entry, we will go back to the new imperial encyclopedia and dictionary of 1909 and that entry is acts of the apostles acts of the apostles the fifth book in the new testament often quoted by the early christian writers and never ascribed to any other writer than the evangelist luke beginning with the ascension of christ it gives an account of the spread of the christian church confined however chiefly to the part taken by the apostle paul notwithstanding its title little is said to of the other apostles with the exception of peter the narrative closes with the year 62 paul being then a prisoner at rome the book has always been received as canonical except by a few manichean heretics though its historical character has been impugned by a few modern writers spurious acts were put in circulation by early christian sects so that's uh that's Acts of the Apostles, and that is a very good book to read, so I highly recommend it. Okay, and our seventh word is Acts, comma, Test and Corporation. And that simply says, see, Test Acts. <laughs> and that's A-C-T-S. Okay, and our next uh, word or words um, is Actual, Actualize, Actuate, Actuation. And it just says, C under act. And we've already gone over that in a previous uh, podcast. Okay, and our next two entries are, surprise, surprise, from the Encyclopedia Americana. So let me get to those. Okay. And the first one is actual sin. In theology, the sin committed by a rational person of his own free choice and with full awareness of its sinfulness. Original sin, on the other hand, is that acquired by all human beings at the moment of conception as a consequence of Adam's sin. And the next word is actuaria. And that's actuaria. It's Latin actuarius, light, rapid. And it is a small, undecked ship with a single bank of oars and a sail used by the Romans chiefly as a dispatch boat. It was not a war vessel. Okay. And that is our tenth word. So with that word, we are going to take a short break and I'll be back soon. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed your break. Um, during the break, I actually fixed my list. Um, 
so it's not all wonky whenever I tell you what number we're on, and we are actually on number 11, which on my old list was number 10, um, but the word is actuary. So we ended with actuaria from the Encyclopedia Americana, um, and now we've got the word actuary from the New Empirical Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. Sorry, I almost forgot what it was called. Um, so it's actuary, which is a noun, and it means one who specially deals with the calculations of probabilities, a notary. The actuary in ancient Rome were clerks who recorded the acta of the Senate and other public bodies. The term might therefore, so far as its etymology is concerned, be applied to men of business in general. But in the constantly increasing tendency to subdivide labor and specialized functions, there has arisen in recent times, so remember this is in the early 1900s, so that's recent, um, we'll keep that in perspective, in recent times a distinct branch of business embracing all monetary questions that involve a consideration of the separate or combined effect of interest and probability, especially as connected with the duration of human life, and it is to one who is officially busied in this department that the name has been specially assigned. The investigations and calculations of the actuary supply and principles of operation for the numerous institutions now engaged in the transaction of life assurance, not insurance, but assurance, annuity, and revisionary business. His functions may be briefly defined as the application of the doctrine of possibility of probabilities to the affairs of life. In accident companies, the actuary needs to be and usually is a man of large practical acquaintance with different employments, their hazards, etc. In fire insur insurance, equal equally, he must know the character of different risks. So there we go. So kind of a risk behavior type thing. Okay, and the next word is aculeate. Aculeate, aculeate, so aculeate, adverb, or aculeated, adverb, in botany, sharp, pointed, thorny, prickly, in zoology, having a sting or prickles, aculiform, adverb, formed like a prickle or thorn, aculeus, noun, a prickle forming a process of the bark only as in the rose. Aculei, plural. Right, so now we're on the 13th word, and it's uh, aculeus in botany, and it just says see prickle. <laughs> so we'll have to wait until prickle, if I can find the peas in this uh, set anyway, that is. Okay, and the next word is acumen, noun, sharpness, quickness, penetration, sagacity, acumenated, sharpened to a point, also acumenate, and acumenous, acumenation, noun, termination in a sharp point, a pointed head, acumenolate, adverb, in botany, having a very sharp tapering point. So that's acumen. Okay, and the 15th word is actually a name. 
Um, he is a Uruguayan poet. Uruguayan poet. Okay, just want to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. So his name is Acuna, Acuna de Figueroa, Francisco. So it's Francisco Acuna de Figueroa. And he was born in Montevideo in 1791, died there in 1862, October 6th. His works are a Spanish-American classic from their metrical perfection, though deficient in warmth. The collection Poetic Mosaic comprises every variety of secular and religious poetry, from heroic poems to psalms. Our next word is acupressure, noun, in surgery, a mode of arresting hemorrhage from cut arteries by the use of needles instead of ligatures. There are several modes of acupressure, but in general, it consists of passing the needle through the flaps or sides of the wound so as to cross over and compress the orifice of the bleeding artery. Just as in putting a flower in the lapel of one's coat, one crosses over and compresses the flower stalk with a pin pushed twice through the lapel. The middle portion of the needle, the only part of it which is in immediate contact with the fresh surface of the wound, bridges over and compresses the artery at its bleeding orifice, or perhaps a line or two more on the side toward the heart. Acupressure is now rarely used, compressing forceps being now employed instead. So I'm not in the medical field, so I don't know what is used now, but remember this is 1909. <laughs> So, all right, our next word is acupuncture, which you could probably guess that after acupressure. And acupuncture, noun, in surgery, the pricking a diseased part with a needle with a view of lessening pain, also acupuncturation, noun, a very ancient remedy practiced extensively in the East in the treatment of many diseases. In Europe, it is principally employed to relieve neurologic pains, and those of chronic rheumatism. Steel needles are used about three inches long, set in handles. The surgeon, by a rotary movement, passes one or more to the desired depth in the tissues and leaves them there for from a few minutes to an hour. Their insertion is accompanied by no pain except the first prick, a fact of which the quacks of the 16th century did not fail to take advantage. Okay, so this is a very... Um, opinionated uh, entry. So remember, we have been reading a lot of opinionated entries. Um, if anyone's had, before I move on, if anyone's had acupuncture, uh, please let me know. I'm, I'm curious about it. Uh, did it help you? Did it feel good? Did it make you feel worse? Would you do it again? Have you done it again? Um, so I'm very curious. I know it's still done. Um, and uh, I know it I've seen scientific, uh, oh goodness, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. Um, I've read articles about it um, whenever I was in school uh, talking about psychology and the placebo effect, and they found that the placebo effect worked just as well as acupuncture, but, um, and they did extensive research on that. It was very interesting, and I don't remember the articles right now, but I'm sure if you Google it, uh, anyone can find it. 
All right, so let's go back to the actual entry. According to Jerome Cardin, they traveled from place to place practicing acupuncture, and before inserting the needle, they rubbed it with a peculiar kind of magnet, either believing or pretending that this made the operation painless. Sometimes a number of needles are used, attached to a disc of metal, wood, or cork, and are inserted into the skin by giving a sharp tap to the disc. The needles are sometimes used as conductors of the galvanic current to deep-seated parts and are sometimes made hollow to allow of a small quantity of some sedative solution being injected into the tissues. The method is not frequently employed at the present day. So there we go. So that is the 1909 version of acupuncture. Now the next word reminds me of a really cool scene from one of my favorite TV shows. Um, and that is, the word is acute. So acute. So any Buffy the Vampire uh, Slayer fans out there, um, if you remember the episode where um, Dawn is getting ready to be kicked out of school, we don't know that part yet, but she's in the magic shop with Willow and uh, Xander and I think um, Tara. And Buffy asks to go speak to Giles. And whenever she gets back, they're all laughing. You know, Buffy's like the big sister saying, hey, you need to do your homework, Dawn. Um, no no goofing off. Don't touch anything. Just do your homework. Because her their mom died and she has to take care of, of her little sister now. Well, when they come back, they're laughing and she thinks they're goofing off. And they talk about, Willow talks about an article she read about learning and trying to implement it and you know they were explaining hey uh, let's make an obtuse triangle and Xander said but we're acute or something like that um but uh but yeah it, it just reminds me whenever anytime I see the word acute I just think of that scene um, because it's such a it's a serious scene um but at the same time um it's a very sweet scene with the friends, but it's just very, very serious. And so, because Buffy's realizing what responsibility, um, you know, how much responsibility it is to to keep her sister there. So anyway, I don't want to get into that. This is not a Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, uh, podcast or anything. Uh, there are Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcasts out there. Um, I've got them saved. I haven't listened to them. I'm sure they're really good. Um... And I do mean to listen to some of them. But anyway, let's get, let's get on with the entry. Acute. Adverb. Sharp pointed, sharp, penetrating, opposed to dull or stupid, high or shrill as opposed to grave or low. In medicine, attended with symptoms that come speedily to a crisis, opposed to chronic. Acutely. Adverb. In an acute manner, sharply. Acuteness. Noun. The quality of being pointed or acute. Force or quickness. Of intellect, acute angle, so there we go, acute angle in geometry, an angle less than a right angle or 90 degrees, acute angled triangle, a triangle or three-sided figure with its three angles acute, synonym of acute, sharp, keen, sagacious, shrewd, penetrating, ingenious, subtle, of acuteness, keenness, penetration, shrewdness, Sagacity, ingenuity. 
So there we go. That is acute. And now we have the next word, which is ad, and that is Latin. It's a Latin prefix meaning to. Ad assumes, for the sake of euphony, the various forms of a, ac, ad, f, adj, al, and ap, r, as, at, according to the first letter of the primitive or root. Okay, and let me mark this off. So I make sure we get all of the words. Okay. And the next word is ado, odo, or which uh, it's spelled A-D-A, -A, and it's ado, a town of the Austrian Empire in Hungary, eight miles south of Zinta. Population is 10,000. And remember, that is the population of 1909. So I don't know how, uh, what the population would be now. Okay, so for our next two words, we switch over to the Encyclopedia Americana. And, and our next word is actually Ada or Oda, which is a village in Ohio in Hardin County, altitude 960 feet, about 15 miles east of Lima, on the Pennsylvania Railroad. Located in an agricultural district, it, is, it also produces manufactured products including athletic and canned goods, lumber, metal, and tile products. Population in 1940 was 2,368, and in 1950, it did increase a little bit to 3,629. Okay, and the next word um, is also from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, and that is also ADA. Or Ada or Oda, which is also a city from Oklahoma in Pontotoc County seat, 40 miles southeast of Shawnee on the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, the St. Louis, San Francisco, and the Oklahoma City Ada Otoka Railroads and Modern Highways. Its industries include pecans, corn, and cotton, and manufacture cement, brick, and tile. It has the East Central State College and the Ada Public Library. Named for Ada Reed, daughter of the first postmaster, it was incorporated in 1910. It has a city manager form of government and owns its own waterworks. Population in 1940 was 15,143, and in 1950, 15,935. And what's really cool about this, one of my friends, uh, who's an author, uh, her name is Betty Bolte, if you haven't read her books, she writes a very, very good um, historical romance and paranormal romance, um, all very clean. Um, I recommend them to my grandmother a lot. So they're just she's just that good. But she was we were talking um, about cities or towns one day, and uh, she wrote a book um, called Becoming Lady Washington, and she uh, told me that. A city in Tennessee was named after her. And then we got to talking about how many cities and towns were named after women. And turns out, hey, this was made, uh, this Ada uh, was named after uh, the postmaster's daughter. So there we go. I'll have to let her know that. But that's pretty cool. Uh, that's a cool little piece of trivia. And if anyone asks you uh, what's, what was named... What's a city named after a woman? Well, Ada. Right. And just as a reminder, and I've already closed it up, that's 
Ada in the city of Oklahoma. It's a city in Oklahoma. So Ada, Oklahoma. So there we go. And our next word comes from the new empirical encyclopedia and dictionary of 1909. And that is a dactyl, which is a noun in zoology, a hand without fingers, a foot without toes. So that's a dactyl. Whenever I first typed this out, I, I was so excited because I was like, oh, this is going to be such a good word. It's going to be about dinosaurs. My nephews are going to really love it. Well, no, it's not about dinosaurs at all. A dactyl is a hand without fingers and a foot without toes. Our next word is Adafudia, which is a town of the Falata country, West Africa, about 400 miles southeast from Timbuktu, about 13 degrees 6 north latitude and 1 degree 3 east longitude. It is in a dry, healthy, and fertile plain and is surrounded by a mud wall. A large trade is carried on and slaves form a principal part of the merchandise. Population supposed about 24,000. And our 25th word, we're going to try to go for a total of 60 words um, this week. Um, last week it was 59 um, because my voice held out. So I'm trying something a little different. I'm actually taking more breaks um, to kind of save my voice so we can get to the full 60. So the 25th word is adage, which is a noun, a proverb, an older wise saying which has been handed down from olden times, synonym of adage, proverb, byword, a force. Let's see, let me slow that down. Aphorism, axiom, maxim, saying, saw, truism, apothem. And that's adage. And it's it's always humorous whenever you read or hear something saying, oh, this is really, really old. And you're reading it from something that's really, really old. So this is from 1909. And they are saying it's an old or wise saying from olden times. So that's what adage is. And the next word you could probably guess is adagio. So it's adagio or adagio, which is a noun, adverb, or let's see your note says ad slowly, a slow movement or measure of time and music between largo, grave, and adante, and more extended compositions of instrumental or chamber music. The second or third movement is generally marked adagio and serves as a contrast with the rapid and energetic movement of the preceding and following parts of the sonata or symphony. The adagio must be written in a measure of time which will afford scope for a flowing and expressive slow melody with a gracefully varied accompaniment. Without contrast in movement and a lively variety in the accompaniment, the slow air would have a monotonous or dull effect. A clear and expressive execution of the adagio is a sure test of ability and good taste in the player or singer, as it demands a pure and beautiful intonation, a true reading and phrasing of the Catalina, even in its most minute details, and a careful attention to all points of effect. The finest specimens of the adagio are found in the works of the old masters, Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven, and are distinct in their features as were the composers in their personal characteristics. 
recent composers have generally succeeded better in their rapid movements than in the adagio. Okay, and our next word is actually a name, and that's Adair James, or James Adair, American 18th century Indian trader and author. He lived from 1735 to 1775 among the Indians, mainly the Cherokees and Chickasaws, and in the latter year published a history of the Indian tribes, especially the southeastern ones, containing an admirable first-hand account of their manners and customs, and a still more valuable, though unsatisfactory, set of Indian vocabularies. But the chief object of writing the book was to trace the origin of the Indians to the lost tribes of Israel. A curious phantasm, especially as the tribes are known not to have been lost and the differentiations of stock must far antedate the Christian era, which has bewitched many enthusiasts since and was revived and expounded by Dr. Elias Baldonite in his Star of the West in 1816. Adar's views are summarized in H.H. Bancroft's Native Races, Volume 5, page 91. Actually, sounds really interesting. I would like to know more about uh, his views on that. And the next name, uh, or the next entry is a name. It's Adair John, or John Adair, American general and public officer, born Chester County, South Carolina, 1759, died in Harrisburg, Kentucky, 1840, May 18th. He served in the Revolution, removed to Kentucky in 1787, in 1791 was major under St. Clair and Wilkinson in the Northwestern Indian Expeditions, and was defeated by the Miami chief Little Turtle near Fort St. Clair. He was a member of the Constitutional Convention when which made Kentucky a state in 1792, June 1st, was state representative and speaker, register of the United States Land Office, and in 1805 to 1806, United States Senator. He was volunteer aide to General Shelby at the Battle of the Thames in 1813, October 5th, made brigadier general of state militia, November of 1814, and as such commanded the state troops at New Orleans under Jackson in 1815 on January 8th. He was governor of Kentucky from 1820 to 1824, a United States representative from 1831 to 1833 on the Committee of Military Affairs. Okay. And he sounds like a very interesting person as well. Okay, we have two more entries before break. Um, the next one, or our 29th entry, is... Adal and Adele. Yes, <laughs> Adal and Adele. That's what it says. The name Adal is applied. Actually, I'm pronouncing that wrong. It's Adele. Adele. The name Adele is applied by geographers to the flat country lying between Abyssinia and the Red Sea from Awasa in north latitude 15 degrees 40 to the Bay of Tajura latitude 11 degrees 30. Adele seems to designate the coast country from Tajura to Cape Gordonafua, part of which is known as the country of the Somali. Okay, and we have one more. So our 30th word, so we're going to be halfway there, um, is a name. It's Ad Albert or Aldebert, who is a native of France who preached the gospel in 744. That's right, 744, <laughs> on the banks of the Maine. 
He is remarkable as the first opponent to the introduction of the rites and ordinances of the Western Church into Germany. He rejected the culture of the saints and confession, but distributed his own hair as sacred relics to his followers. He was accused of heresy by Boniface, the Apostle of Germany, and condemned by two councils at Soissons in 744 and at Rome in 745. Finally, escaping from prison, he is said to have been murdered by some peasants on the banks of the Fulda. So that was Ad Albert, or Aldebert. And with that, we are going to take a short break and we'll be back soon. And welcome back to the Oak Tree Journeys. Hope you enjoyed your break. Um, and this is actually the second time I'm recording, so hopefully the second time is the charm. Um, I just read way too fast the first time. I'm not sure why, uh, but I just got super tongue-tied. I read so fast. So we ended with Ad Albert uh, before break, um, and now we are on a, another person. Adalbert Saint of Prague. So it's Saint Adalbert of Prague. Uh, the Apostle of Prussia Prosper, <clears throat> who was born 939 and died in 997. Yes, you heard that right. The 900s, <laughs> not the 1900s. Uh, let's see, so died 997 of April 23rd. He was the son of a Bohemian nobleman. And his real name was Wojtek, which means host or comfort. He was educated in the Cathedral of Magdeburg and appointed the second bishop of Prague in 983. He labored in vain to convert the Bohemians from paganism and to introduce among them the ordinances of the Church of Rome. Discouraged by the fruitlessness of his pious zeal, he left Prague in 988 and lived in convents and Monte Cassino in Rome until the Bohemians in 993 recalled him. But after two years, he again left them, disgusted with their barbarous manners. I'm sorry, barbarous manners. So he was just disgusted with them. He returned to Rome and soon followed the Emperor Otho III to Germany, on which journey he baptized at Grand St. Stephen, afterward King of Hungary. He proceeded to Gneisen to meet Boleslas, Duke of Poland. Being informed that the Bohemians did not wish to see him again, he resolved to convert the pagans of Prussia, but was murdered by a peasant near what is now Fischhausen. His body was bought by Boleslas <laughs> for its weight in gold. Wow, can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone buying your body with just gold? With how much ever you weighed at your death, they paid that in gold. That is just crazy. Uh, and his body became famous for its miraculous power. I added his body because it doesn't really say. Its influence was greater than that of the saint himself, so he was worth more dead than alive. The Bohemians, who had refused to receive the ordinances of the church, now suffered them to be introduced into Prague on the sole condition that these miraculous relics should be transferred to their city. So now they're calling his body a relic. 
They re were rediscovered in a vault in 1880 and deposited in the cathedral. Uh, it doesn't say this, but this is uh, basically C, uh, Life by Hager Konensberg, 1897, Voigt Berlin, 1898. So that that's just a, just a little crazy entry there. Um, held a, a, a unique life. <laughs> life and death. Right, and the next name, um, I read, I read, now this is the name I read really, really fast the first time. So let me see if I can slow it down and uh, don't let the name fool you um, because we are about to read some pretty horrific stuff. Adelbert the Great. So Adelbert the Great, who was an Archbishop of Bremen and Hamburg. Born about 1000, died about 1072, March 17th, descendant of a Saxon princely house. He received his office in 1043 from the Emperor Henry III, whose relation, friend, and follower he was. He accompanied Henry to Rome in 1046 and was a distinguished candidate for the papal chair. Pope Leo IX made him his legate in the north of Europe in 1050. He super, superintended the churches of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, converted the winds, and aspired to a great northern patri patriarchate to be with the Roman Curia. During the minority of Henry IV, he usurped, in concert with Hanno, Archbishop of Cologne, the guardianship of the young prince and the administration of the empire, and gained an ascendancy over his rival by indulging the passions of his pupil. After Henry had become of age, Adalbert exercised the government without control in his name. His pride and arbitrary administration induced the German princes in 1066 to remove him by force from the court, but after a short contest with the Saxon nobles who laid waste his territory, he recovered his former power in 1069 and held it till his death in Gosler in 1072. Here we go. This is where the great uh, is misleading. His injustice and tyranny were instrumental in producing the confusion and calamities in which the reign of Henry IV was involved. So that is just, whew, having that much influence, it's crazy. And uh, let's move on to, um, instead of a person, uh, this time we, we have a chief seaport. And uh, that seaport is Adelia. So Adelia is our next word. That is our 33rd word. And we are going to try to get to 60 today. So let's see what, we, what Adelia, what it says about Adelia. Ancient, anciently, Atalia, so it's spelled A-D, but anciently it was spelled with A-T-T, was a chief seaport on the south coast of Asia Minor, north latitude 36 degrees 52, east longitude 30 degrees 45. The streets rise like the seats of a theater up the slope of the hill behind the, the barber. And this one says barber, not harbor. Population 13,000. Okay. And now we go back to a name. 
Adam. So those of you uh, who know the book of Genesis and the Bible, uh, Adam is considered a noun, which is Hebrew, Adama, ground, earth. The first man mentioned in Genesis, Adamic, adverb, pertaining to Adam's apple, noun, the prominent part of the throat, the larynx, Adam's needle, I haven't heard of that one, Adam's needle, a plant of New Mexico, the yucca glorioso, gloriosa, gloriosa, and Adamites, noun, plural, a religious sect of the first and revived in the 15th century who professed an exact imitation of the primitive state of innocence in their public assemblies. Adamitic, adverb, pertaining to the time of Adam, pre-Adamite, adverb, before the time of Adam. Okay, which there wasn't that much time before Adam. Okay. Adam and Eve. So here we go. So we're going to learn a little bit more about this, um, what they say have to say about him and about them in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So let's take a look. I have not read this entry yet, so I'm not sure what it says. Uh, so it says, Adam and Eve, the earliest man and woman of the human race. The narrative of their creation and fall is in Genesis. To the scriptural account, the latter Jewish writers in the Talmud have made many tasteless additions. They tell us that the stature of Adam, when first created, reached to the heavens, while the splendor of his countenance surpassed that of the sun. The very angels stood in awe of him, and all creatures hastened to worship him. Then the Lord, in order to show the angels his power, caused a sleep to fall on Adam and removed a portion of every limb. Adam thus lost his vast stature, but remained perfect and complete. His first wife was Lilith, the mother of demons, but she fled from him, and afterwards Eve was created for him. At the marriage of Adam and Eve, angels were present, some playing on musical instruments, others serving up delicious viands, while the sun, moon, and stars danced together. The happiness of the human pair excited envy among the angels, and the seraph Samuel tempted them and succeeded in leading them to their fall from innocence. According to the Quran, all the angels paid homage to Adam, excepting Eblis, who, on account of his refusal, was expelled from paradise. To gratify his revenge, Eblis seduced Adam and Eve, and they were separated. Adam was penitent and lived in a tent on the site of the temple of Mecca, where he was instructed in the divine commandments by the archangel Gabriel. After 200 years of separation, he again found Eve on Mount Ararat. Many other traditions of the Jews and the Mohemedans respecting Adam and Eve may be found in Herbalot's Bibliothèque Orientale. In the system of the Christian Gnostics and Manicheans, Adam is one of the highest eons. According to the Calvinistic theology, Adam was the covenant head or federal representative of the whole human race who were thus involved in the consequences of his breach of the covenant which God made with him at his creation. This view is supported by reference to the parallel drawn between Adam and Christ. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, in the latter of which chapters Christ is called in contradiction to Adam, the second man, and the last Adam. Um, wow. Uh, I'm not going to really say much about that except just uh, read, read your Bible. Um, so there we go. All right. And the next entry is Adam of Bremen died 1076, who was an old historical writer whose work entitled 
Gesta, Hemen Virginisus, Ecclesiasia Pontificum, gives a history of the Archbishopric of Hamburg from 788 to the death of the Archbishop Adalbert in 1072. So another Adalbert. Or is that the same one? Oh, no, that's the same one we just talked about. So that's Adalbert the Great. Um, this work has great historical value in addition to its notices of... This is volume 1 through 6, but let's see if that's a typo. Because remember in this one, they have a lot of random volumes just kind of sitting around at the bottom of the page. Oh, yep, that's a typo. Alright, so this work has great historical historical value in addition to its notices of ecclesiastical affairs it gives accounts to the northern Slavonic tribes which the author collected during a visit to the Danish king Svend Estrethsen Adam was canon and magister scholarum at Bremen from 1067 till his death okay right. and so we have another Adam uh, this time last name so Adam Adolf Charles, or Adolf Charles Adam, in 1803, July 24th through 1856, born Paris, France. And I just love how they kind of mix up these, these dates. So in one entry, it'll say born in, and uh, other entries, I mean, it's just, the, the dates are just all over the place, so... So, born in Paris, France, he was a musical composer. Beginning in 1848, he was professor of composition in the Paris Conservatoire, at the same time contributing to newspapers. His style was that of Baudieu. His most popular works were his comic operas, the chief of which is the Postillon de Langumia, produced 1835, still presented on the stage. I don't know if it's still presented to this day, but it was back in the early 1900s. <clears throat> okay, and we have another name. We've got a lot of names. Um, we are getting into uh, mostly names now, it looks like. Okay, and the next name is Adam Alexander, LLD, or Alexander Adam, LLD. And he was an eminent Scottish scholar and teacher Born 1741, June 24th, died 1809, December 18th, born near Fors, Eglonshire, of a family in humble circumstances. With great struggles and under much deprivation through poverty, he pursued his studies, entered Edinburgh University in 1757, and from 1768 for nearly 40 years was rector of the High School of Edinburgh, gaining a distinguished reputation. Among his pupils were Scott and Jeffrey. Um, the, no last name, just Scott and Jeffrey. I'm assuming we'll find out who they are later, maybe. <laughs> he introduced reforms in teaching in the face of an opposition that now seems incredible. His Roman Antiques of 1791 was long the best manual of its kind. Among his works were Summary of Geography and History in 1794, Classical Biography in 1800, and an abridged Latin dictionary of 1805. This last teacher's words were, But it grows dark, boys, you may go. Okay, imagine being those being your last words. Um, but it grows dark, boys, you may go. Well, he sounds like a really interesting person. 
Okay, and the next person is a Canadian author and editor, um, Adam Graham Mercer. So Graham Mercer Adam, Canadian author and editor, born Scotland, 1839. Uh, it does show a death, so he's probably, I'm assuming he's still alive at the time of this writing. Um, so he was born in Scotland, 1839. He was trained in Blackwood's Publishing House in Edinburgh and immigrating became a publisher in Toronto and New York. He later edited several Canadian periodicals, assisted Goldwyn Smith on The Bystander, and founded with him the Canadian Monthly of 1872. In 1879, he founded the Canadian Educational Monthly. In 1896, he became editor of Self Culture. He has written an outline history of Canadian literature of 1886, the Canadian Northwest of 1895, and with Ethelwyn Wethel, Wet Herald. The historical novel and Alequin Maiden, etc. Okay, and before I move on to the next person, this uh, he reminds me of the challenge that uh, my friend Charlie and I are doing. It was her turn to pick. If you remember, she challenged me first with the word flummoxed, um, and we had to write um, a 55 word or less story with the word flummoxed. Um, I chose uh, the next word and uh. That was the word acerb. So I chose the word acerb and we had to write two, a two sentence story. And that was her turn. And she chose a very interesting challenge. Um, instead of a story, we have to take a box of crowns. Um, I think she said no more than 24 crowns. Uh, it can be a box of eight, I think the 24. Um, and we have to name those crowns um, a name of someone famous. So I think. I may do that later today. Um, I have to, I don't have to, but I'm going to uh, North Carolina with my grandfather. He's going to put flowers on, I guess put some family members' graves, and he does it every year. But this year, uh, I decided to go with him. Um, I offered to drive, and I still hope to drive, but we'll see how that goes. But um, So if he drives, I may do that today. But it sounds like an interesting uh, challenge, and I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I have just written um, a story for a contest, um, and the story, in the story, the protagonist had to be a teacher, so this kind of reminded me of both, um, both of those, and, uh, you know, it's been really fun. The story I, I just finished was really fun, so I'm looking forward to, to the challenge as well. It's going to be a good, a good little break, I think, um from you know between now and whenever I write um again so anyway I just wanted to tell you about that neat challenge uh Charlie has some really unique challenges and if you haven't visited her website um I would go ahead and do that I don't have it written down right now um all of my papers are elsewhere but uh I think it's L.C. Holman yeah I believe it's her website is lcholman.com, and uh, she's got, if you're interested in the Pulitzer Prize uh, books, she's got a, a blog of each of those books, every book that's won the Pulitzer Prize. So it's, I believe it's lcholman.com, and uh, I can look that up uh, during our next break to make sure. Okay, and let's move along to the next word which again is a name, Adam Juliet Lambert, 
or Juliet Lambert Adam. Oh, here we go. Another author. So, see? My story just moved right along there. French author and editor, born Burberry, France of 1836. She was married first to M. Lamassin, and after his death in Ed to Edmund Adam, deputy for the Department of the Scene, and a life senator who died in 1877. She has published many works of fiction, essays, etc., and founded the Nouvelle Review of 1879, of which she continued editor till 1886, when she retired in failing health. I think this is Madame, Madame Adam is a writer of marked ability, especially on politics. Her salon was a feature of Parisian life, reminiscence of those of the First Empire. So it sounds like she's still alive, even though she has failing health. Um, at the time that this was written, she was still alive. And if anyone has read Juliet Adams or Graham Adams' books, uh, let me know. Um, go to theoaktreejourneys.com, go to contact, and uh, just drop me a line and let me know if you've read any of their books. And the next person, um, it's a very long name, and that is Adam Corinne Francois Lucien. So, Corinne Francois Lucien Adam. French philologist, born Nancy, 1833, his works largely devoted to the study of primitive or savage tongues, have included, among others, American Indian subjects as Sketch of a Comparative Grammar of Creek and Chippewa, 2nd edition, 1876. Studies on Six American Languages, 1878. Also, Grammar of the Manchalk Language, 1873. Lorraine Patois's, 1881. Um, something Aryan and Malaya Aryan Idioms of 1883. Okay, and... The next name is Adam Robert, or Robert Adam, and it looks like he was born in 1728 and died of 1792. He was born in Edinburgh and was a distinguished architect, son of William Adam of Maryburg, Fiveshire, also an architect. After receiving a university education, Adam went 1754 to Italy and thence to Dalmatia, where he explored and made drawings of the ruins of Diocletian's palace at Spalatro. On his return to Britain, he rapidly rose to distinction, was appointed architect to the king, and obtained extensive employment. Oh, wow, he had to be really, really good. In opposition to the heavy style of architecture prevalent, Adam introduced a taste for lightness and decoration, which, however, tended to be the opposite extreme of weakness and triviality. Yet those who form the lowest estimate of the general character of his designs grant him the merit of having effected great and general reforms in British domestic architecture. In 1768, Adam was elected MP for the county of Kinross. During upwards of 25 years, his practice in partnership with his brother James was more extensive than that of any other architect of the time. In 1773, the brothers began to publish a series of engravings of their chief designs, which was continued for some years. Adam was buried in Westminster Abbey, or I'm sorry, Westminster Abbey. The most generally admired of his works is the Register House, Edinburgh. Kittleston Hall, near Derby, is regarded by some as his greatest work. 
Among his other principal works are the University Buildings and St. George's Church, Edinburgh, both altered from the original design. The Glasgow Infirmary and Adelphi Buildings in London, the screen to the Admiralty, Canewood House, Luton House, altered, Lansdowne House, etc. So he was a very busy person. Okay, and for these next two, uh, we're going to go to the Encyclopedia Americana. And this next entry um, is, is pretty long, um, but it takes me back to my university days. Um, before I get into that, let me grab something to drink here. I'll try to move away from the micro uh, microwave. <laughs> the microphone so you don't hear me. Okay, so maybe some of you will recognize this name, um, Adam Bede, and it's not just a name, it's a title of a book. So Adam Bede, <clears throat> and I had to read this in college, and uh, it was interesting, it was an interesting book, um, it's kind of long, I don't remember much about it. I did like it at the time, but I don't think I would go back and, and read it um, just willy-nilly. But those of you who have read it, let me know what you think of it. So let's see what this encyclopedia has to say about it. Okay, Adam Bede, the first long novel of George Eliot, and that's uh, not her real name, was published in 1859. The action takes place in the English village of Hayslope, where the hero Adam, a simple workman of sterling worth, pursues his trade of carpentry, very different from Adam and his brother, Seth, a gentle and loving spirit whose religious emotions have been strongly engaged by a Methodist revival of the time. Seth is devotely in love with the leading exponent of the sect in the Hayslope community, Dinah Morris, but she, consecrated to her work of evangel evangelical preaching, refuses to think of him except with sisterly and religious affection. Adam loves Hetty Sorrel, a beautiful but vain and shallow country girl, who encourages him but secretly hopes to make a much loftier marriage. When young Arthur Donathorne, son of the village squire, falls in love with her, both her passion and her ambition are stirred. Arthur, who is kind-hearted but weak-willed, tries to resist his infatuation, but finally yields to it. When Adam discovers them together, there is a stormy scene between the two men, and Arthur agrees to tell Hetty that he can never marry her. Hetty, in her loneliness after Arthur's departure, becomes engaged to Adam, not knowing that she is to be a mother. When at last she realizes her condition, she goes to Windsor in search of Arthur. Finding after a painful journey that he has gone to Ireland, she wanders miserably to seek Dinah. The scene now changes to Hayslope, where the girl's long absence has aroused anxiety, and the reader learns with Adam that she is in prison, charged with the murder of her child. She is condemned to death, but at the last moment, when supported by Dinah, she's going to the gallows. Her sentence is commuted to transportation. The release from death being brought by Arthur Donathorne, the subject of Hetty's sin is handled with peculiar delicacy, and her wretched journey is one of the most poignant incidents of fiction. The story ends with the marriage of Adam and Dinah, who have been unconsciously drawn together from the first. The characters in the story, simple country people as they are, working on the farm or in the shop, are portrayed with unusual distinctness 
and their appeal is direct and powerful. Um, yeah, that may be, but I don't remember a single thing this is talking about. Um, the analysis of Hetty's character is particularly keen. In the midst of pity for her fate, the reader is never allowed to forget the girl's shallowness and selfishness. Finely contrasted with Hetty is Dinah Morris, in her purity and self selflessness. But the dominant figure is Adam Bede himself, level-headed and iron-willed, morally uncompromising, finding his best religion and work well done. The theme of the inevitable consequences of wrongdoing, which is ever-present in George Eliot's novels, is strongly emphasized, and the story as a whole is not to be forgotten. Um, yeah, <laughs> says the writer of this entry. Um, James H. Hanford, professor of English, graduate school, Western Reserve University. Okay, <laughs> so I just got my A and moved on. Or it may have been a B. I don't think that teacher gave A's, but got an A or B and I moved on. Um, but if anyone has read Adam Bede and you remember it, and you remember what they're talking about here, let me know. I mean, <laughs> I don't remember it being that that good. I mean, it was good. It, it was very, very good when I read it again, but I don't remember anything that they're talking about. Okay. The next word is Adam Homo, a poem by Frederick Paladon Mueller, and his most important work appeared during the years 1841 to 1848. It is, it is of particular significance in Danish literature as it marks the end of Romanticism. In Denmark, in Adam Gottlob, Ollenschlager's Aladdin, which introduces the period of Romanticism, imagination is given full play. In Adam Homo, cool reason prevails. Ollenschlager points to Aladdin, the favorite of fortune. Paludin Mueller shows us Adam Homo, man as he really is. The name of the poem suggests that the hero represents the average man as we find him in everyday life. Human life, as it is, contrasted with the ideal, is the theme of the book. And whenever they talk about Aladdin here, they're not talking about the Disney's Aladdin. Disney's Aladdin is very watered down. I know they've got this. Um, I recently got Disney Plus to watch a couple of uh, older movies and, and a couple of newer ones. Um, but uh, I tried re-watching Aladdin, and at the beginning they've got this whole spill about how it's just a terrible, terrible movie and it never should have been done. No, it's a fun movie. And whoever wrote the little warning at the beginning has never read some of the original Aladdins. There are a lot of Aladdin stories out there that are not watered down. And they are just horrific. I mean, just absolutely, you know, Disney never should have put that little blurb. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. If you've ever read any of the Aladdins, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, the Disney movie Aladdin is just a fun little movie that kids can watch. But I don't know why they put that blurb there. Well, I, I do know why, but we're not going there because that's not <laughs> that's not what kind of podcast this is. Um, but at any rate, uh, I I find it interesting that they that they're saying that Aladdin was was a uh, romanticism because uh, I just recently read one. Um, let's see here for Adam Homo is realistic and presents modern life with all its ugliness and wickedness. 
With shocking truthfulness, the author shows how one may lose sight of ideals and squander a spiritual heritage. Adam is the son of a minister in Jutland who overemphasizes the material things of this world. His mother, a spiritual woman, tries to interest her boy in the higher life. That's interesting because the Aladdin I read, and I find it interesting because they keep contrasting this with Aladdin, but the version that I read, Aladdin was very, very lazy and didn't want to work at all, and everything was just handed to him on a silver platter. I mean, that was all it was. Um, so I find this comparison very interesting. They must be talking about a completely different Aladdin. Um, let's see. Adam is the son of a minister in Jutland who overemphasizes the material things of this world. His mother, a spiritual woman, tries to interest her boy in the higher life. While Adam studies at Copenhagen, his nobler impulses are kept alive by the loving letters of his mother and by his association with her pure-minded, with a pure-minded young woman. Unfortunately, Adam succumbs to the temptations of new conditions, and almost without being aware of the fact, he gradually loses sight of his ideals. Doesn't that usually happen uh, whenever kids leave college or leave for college, leave home? It makes material gain and social recognition the goal of his efforts. Though he becomes a man of distinction in society, he leads a sordid life, for his enthusiasm for truth, beauty, and goodness is gone. And the person who wrote this is Joseph Alexis, professor of Germanic languages and literatures, University of Nebraska. I want to look up their version of Aladdin and this Adam Homo. So if anyone has read, I've never even heard of this poem uh, by Frederick Pollander Mueller. If you have, let me know. If you've ever read it, uh, let me know. And I will try to, I'm going to put a star right here on my list. I'm going to try to find that. Uh, book uh, or that story and read it um, and actually read that version of Aladdin as well and whenever I do if I if I do find them both um, I'll let you know and I'll let you know how it goes all right so let's switch back over to the new empirical encyclopedia and dictionary of 1909 and I'm looking at my list and this uh, we're actually sticking with the 1909 version um, between now and the 60th word. I don't see where we switch over anymore. So we're going to st strictly stay with the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And I'm adamant about that. And adamant um, is a noun, and that is actually our 45th word. Um, and it means what cannot be broken, tamed, or subdued. A stone or metal of impenetrable hardness, the diamond. Adamantine, adverb. Exceedingly hard, hard-hearted, not to be broken or subdued. Also adamantian, hard as adamant. So adamantian, I've not heard of that one. And the next word is adamantine spar. Um, that's spar, not spear. And it just says C corundum. <laughs> So I'll have to wait till we get to the letter C's to find out what that means. And our next word is Adamawa. So Adamawa, which was formerly Fumbina. Now both of those words are kind of fun to say. Adamawa, Fumbina. Um, as internally autonomous sultanate of Central Africa between latitude 6 degrees and 11 degrees north, and longitude 11 degrees and 17 degrees east, 
part of the Sokoto Empire in northern Nigeria, area some 50,000 square meters, or is that miles, square miles. Much of the surface is mountainous, the mountains rising to about 8,000 feet. The principal rivers are the Banu and its tributary, the Pharaoh. The eastern part belongs to the German Cameroon, the western to British North Nigeria. A great part of the country is covered with thick forests, though there are also extensive and splendid pasture lands and cultivated fields. Slaves and ivory are the chief articles of trade. Population conjectured at 3 million. Um, not 3,000. As of 1909, the conjectured population is 3 million. I think that is the highest uh, population we've seen. Uh, even uh, between the 1909 and the 1956. Uh, I could be wrong, um, but I'm pretty sure that's the highest one. Okay, our next word is uh, very long. Um, if you notice, we're not in people, but we will we will be back to people soon. Um, so I did practice this word, but let's let's see if we can if I could say it again. Adam Beulah crawl. So it's Adam Beulah crawl. So Adam Beulah crawl. Adverb in zoology applied to the small bones which bound the crawl grooves in the starfishes. See ossicle. Okay, and the next word, as promised, is a name. And we are on our 49th entry. And that name is Adam de la Hell, or Hell. And it, he was a French poet and composer, born heiress about 1235, died Naples about 1287, nicknamed the Hunchback of Eris, although he was not deformed. His satirical extravaganza, The Play of Adam, oh, <coughs> oh excuse me. <clears throat> so the play of Adam, or the play in the arbor of 1262, constitutes the earliest comedy in the vulgar tongue, while the pastoral drama, the play of Robin and of Marion, may be looked upon as the earliest specimen of comic opera. Well, that's interesting. Okay, and the last name before break is Adami Frederick, or Frederick Adami, or Adami. It's spelled with an I, but it's pronounced with an E, so Adam E. He was a German author, born Seoul, 1816, October 18th, and died Berlin, 1893, of August 5th. He wrote stories, plays, etc., a very popular biography of Queen Louise, and the book of Emperor William from 1887 to 1890. Okay, and with that, uh, we're going to take a short break. Okay, and welcome back. And as promised, I did check the website, and yes, it is lcholman.com. And whenever you uh, plug that in, uh, it takes you to Leona Charlie Holman, home of the Pulitzer Project. So, there we go. And we are on our 51st word. That's right, 51st word. And I'm just realizing I lost my place between now and, and break. 
So, okay, we stopped at Adamai Frederick. Okay, here we go. So the next word is a, na is a name, as promised. Most of these are names. Um, it's um, Adamai John George. So John George Adamai. English-American pathologist, born Manchester, England, Manchester, England in 1862, educated at Owens College, there in Christ's College, Cambridge, studied at Breslau, okay, Breslau and Paris, became de demonstrator of pathology at Cambridge in 1887, fellow of Jesus College in 1891. In 1892, he came to Montreal as professor of pathology in McGill University, from 1894, has been head of the pathological department at the Royal Victoria Hospital there. From 1896, lecturer to the New York Pathological Society. He has published papers on pathological topics and articles in Albert's System of Medicine. So, as of this writing in 1909, he was still alive. Okay, and uh, the next name is Adamite, named for M. Adam, a French mineralogist. A mineral, oh, well, this is not a name, sorry. <laughs> um, so, Adamite is a mineral isomorphous with olivonite and occurring in small orthohombic crystals that are often grouped in fine granular aggregations. It is an arsenic, arsenate of zinc, having the formula ZN3AS2O8ZN, in parentheses, OH2. Although copper and cobalt may also be present, its hardness is 3.5 and its sp.gr.4.35. Its color is variable. It occurs at Cap Garonne near here is France, and also at Larium, Greece, and in certain parts of Chile. Okay. And the next word um, is a sect of fanatics. Um, called the Adamites. So the Adamites are a sect of fanatics who spread themselves in Bohemia and Moravia in the 15th and 16th centuries, but had no connection with the Hussites. One Picard is said to have been the founder of the sect about 1400. He styled himself Adam, the son of God, rejected the sacrament of the supper and the priesthood, and advocated the community of women. After his death, his followers spread themselves in Bohemia under several leaders. They even fortified themselves on an island in a tributary of the Laudau and committed depredations around. They were detested as much by the followers of Hus as by the Roman Catholics. Ziska made war against them and slew great numbers, but they were never entirely rooted out. Even as recently as 1849, when the Austrian government declared religious liberty for all its subjects, Certain members of this sect appeared and endeavored to gain proselytes. The official investigation into their character, which took place at that time, represents their creed as a mixture of free thinking, quietism, and communion communism, communism. The members belong to the peasant or laboring class, and both men and women are generally industrious, temperate, and discreet in their ordinary course of life. But at their nightly meetings, at which they dispense with clothes and utmost lasciviousness, is said to prevail. As early as the second century, there was a sect of Gnostic tendency called Adamites who sought, by abstaining from all indulgence of the senses, to recall the state of innocence men, men were in before the fall. They 
therefore rejected marriage and in order to exercise the virtue of continence went naked. They held that for those who had once attained the state of innocence, all actions were alike indifferent, neither good nor evil. This doctrine led directly to the greatest licentiousness. Aberrations of this kind under various disguises and modifications have made their appearance from time to time in all ages of the world. Okay, and uh, the next entry is Adamanan. So this is a person. Um, the entry is very long. Um, but it's uh, Saint Adamant, Adamnan, um, and <clears throat> sorry, the uh, the words are a little faded here. Uh, born about six twenty five in the county of Donegal, died in seven o four, a member of the early Irish Church to whom the world is deeply indebted for the information which he left about that remarkable community. His name was properly Adam of which Adamanan was the diminutive. It is one of the peculiarities of that early church that the genealogies of its eminent members have been preserved with a minuteness scarcely rivaled in the days of Phrages. In the words of Dr. Reeves concerning Adamanan, his father Ronan was sixth in descent from Canal Golban, the head of one of the two great races of the northern High Nil and in virtue of his birth, claimed kin to St. Columba and many of the sovereigns of Ireland. The father of Ronan was Tin, from whom came the patronymic U-Tin, or grandson of Tin, an appellative which is occasionally found coupled with Adamanan's name. Ronat, the mother of <laughs> Adamanan, was descended from Ana, a son of Nial, whose race the single Ina possessed themselves of the tract lying between the channels of the Foil and Swilly, which was called the Tyr Inna, or Land of Inna, and answers to the modern barony of Raffo. He was like many of the eminent Irish clergy, a statesman as well as an ecclesiastic, and we hear of his being sent on missions from his own people to Alfred, king of Northumbria. In 679, he was elected abbot of Iona. His rule over that community was not, however, peaceful and fortunate. The views held by the Irish Church about the holding of Easter and the form of the tonsure are now known as a chapter in the history of the Church. However, little their own importance might be, they are significant as the object of a bitter contest in which that Church resisted the rules promulgated from Rome. In his intercourse with the Saxon church, Adamanan had adopted the Roman or Orthodox views, as they are termed, and endeavored to put them in practice in his own community. He was thwarted in this subject, and is said that mortification at the failure caused his death. September 23rd, the date of his death, is the day his translation in the calendar. He left an account of the Holy Land containing matters which he says were communicated by Archolophus, a French ecclesiastic who had lived in Jerusalem. It is valuable as the earliest information we possess of Palestine in the early ages of Christianity. But far more valuable is his Vita Sancti Columba, his life of St. Columba, the converter of the Picts and founder of Iona. With accounts of miracles and many other stories palpably incredible, this book reveals a great deal of distinct and minute matter concerning the remarkable body to which both the author and his hero belonged. 
The standard edition of the book is that Dr. Reeves edited 1857 for the Benetine Society of Edinburgh and the Irish Ar Archaeological Society, which, with an English translation, forms the sixth volume, 1875, of Scottish historians. Nearly all the information to be had about the early Scoto-Irish church is comprised in that volume. Okay. Go and the next one is Adams, and this is not a name, but it is a town in Berkshire County, Massachusetts, on the Hoosick River and on the Boston and Albany Railroad, about ten miles north northwest of Pittsfield. There are four villages: North Adams, South Adams, Maple Grove, and Blackington. At North Adams is the west end of the Hoosick Tunnel. Adams is a thriving manufacturing town and is overlooked by Greylock Mountain. 3,500 feet high. The population in 1890 is 9,213 and in 1900, 11,134. Okay, and we are going to the names now. And you will recognize this name, Adams Abigail Smith or Abigail Smith Adams. Uh, she was the wife of President John Adams, born Weymouth, Massachusetts. 1744, November 23rd, died 1818, October 28th. She was daughter of a Weymouth or Weymouth clergyman who opposed the match and took for a text, quote, My daughter is grievously tormented with a devil, end quote. Though lacking strength in regular school education, she became a self-made force of high order in public affairs and one of the best early American writers. Her letters to her husband, collected and published, are not only of great historical and social value, but full of delightful, genial humor and acute comment and judgment. Her husband's position kept them apart for years, but she joined him in France in 1784, went with him to his life of torment in London, and lived in Washington from 1789 to 1801, thence till death at Braintree, now Quincy. Okay. Sounds like a very remarkable woman. I didn't know she was an author. Um, for all I've heard about her, never once heard she was a writer. Um, I knew about the letters, but, you know, that's a different type of writing. And you know, I try to write letters and it is just really hard. <laughs> it takes a special, special person to write letters on a regular basis. So if you write letters on a regular basis, my hat is off to you and I respect you for that. Okay. Um, the next name is Adams Alvin or Alvin Adams. Founder of Adams Express Company, born Andover, Vermont, 1804, June 16th, died 1877, September 2nd. On 1840, May 4th, he started an express business between Boston and New York, which developed into the great company above named, form, named formed in 1854 by the con consolidation of several rival firms, including Harndon's, the initiator of the express business, with Mr. Adams as president. In 1850, he helped to organize the Pioneer Express Service through the California mining camps, which on the consolidation above he sold out. In the Civil War, the Adams Express Company was of immense help to the government. In 1870, it extended its business to the Far West. Okay, and the next uh, name is another writer. So, yay! <laughs> um... Adams Brooks, or Brooks Adams, American social writer, son of Charles Francis, born Quincy, Massachusetts of 1848, June 2nd, 
was graduated at Harvard in 1870 and practiced law till 1871. Besides magazine papers, he has written The Gold Standard, The Emancipation of Massachusetts, or Mass uh, yeah, A Bitter Assault on the Puritan Theocracy in 1887, The Love of Civilization and Decay, America's Economic Supremacy, Supremacy 1900, and The New Empire of 1902. Okay, and um, it looks like he was still alive. Yeah, he was still alive when this was written. Okay. I always find that interesting. Um, even in the 1956 one, I like to see if they, they were still alive during the writing of that. Alright, so the next one, the next name is Adams Charles Baker or Charles Baker Adams. And he was an American naturalist, born Dorchester, Massachusetts, of 1814, died in 1853. He was graduated at Amherst, assisted in the Geological Survey of New York in 1836, held scientific chairs in Amherst from 1836 to 1838, Middlebury College, Vermont, 1838 to 1847, and Amherst again in 1847 to 1853, Vermont, 1845 to 1847. He wrote a geology... <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> oh, let me see if I could say this. He wrote a book about geology. It was a textbook. There we go. My tongue, for some reason, just cannot wrap itself around that word right now. And we have one more word. Uh, before we get into that word, though, uh, or actually the name, uh, one last entry, which is the person's name. Um, I do want to remind you that if you have a word or, you know, a person's name, um, a place, something that you're just curious about, um, and you want to know more about it and you don't have time to look it up, or you want to, you want me to do a deep dive on it, please let me know. Uh, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact and just send me a line and let me know what the word is or the name. It could be a, a person's name, a place. Um, or just a definition you're a little confused about. Um, but uh, yeah, just, just go ahead and, and send me that. We will have a bonus podcast. Um, I'm hoping uh, before the month ends. So before September, we should have a bonus podcast. I've almost got the five words. Um, remember, we need five or more words um, before I do it. And a couple of people did tell me that they were going to send words. So once they send me those words, I'll work on the on the bonus podcast. So I'm very excited about it. Um, because, you know, whenever I, I use the word adamant, um, the, the uh, encyclopedia dictionary didn't define it the way I used it. And there is more than one definition of the word adamant. Um, I'm very adamant about that. <laughs> so that was a little disappointing not to see that. Uh, and you may be disappointed that you know, there's a word that you know or a person that you know about and you're disappointed that the encyclopedia entry didn't have the full information on it. Or maybe it was leaned a little biasly. Uh, remember, these were written by by people with, with uh, passions and emotions and opinions. And we are seeing, even as I'm reading it, um, I'm like, wow, uh, I, I, it stirs up emotions and, and me too. So... I, and I like that. I'm not saying it's wrong. I really enjoy uh, reading that, especially the music. If you if you notice, they 
whoever writes the musical entries is very, very passionate about that. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and get into our last name for today. And that is Adams Charles Fallen, or Charles Fallen Adams. He was an American dialect poet born Dorchester, Massachusetts, 1842, April 21st. He was a Union soldier, began writing broken German poems in 1872, author of Lidl, Jakob, Strauss, and other poems. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1878, Dialect Ballads, 1887, Dot Long Handled Dipper, Voss Marriage a Failure. <coughs> Excuse me. Under Oak, Under Vine, etc. Okay, and that is it. That is our last entry for today. We got through 60 entries from the two different encyclopedias. And we're also going to stick with Adams for a while. There are a lot of people with the last name Adams. So we are going to be in the ADs. In fact, I'm not even sure. I'm just kind of flipping through here. If Wow, this one entry is... So, okay, I thought that was more than one. Okay, yeah, it looks like we can get through Adams um, next week. Okay, yeah, if we do our 59 to 60 words, we should get through Adams next week. Okay, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed um, this episode. This is episode 25. Um, so that is, wow, thank you so much uh, for listening. I've got 25 episodes, and I highly appreciate you sticking with this challenge, um, I know I've had fun. Um, I've already, you know, whenever we went past the word that I was stuck on uh, for over a year, we we did a little celebration. So I am just this is to be, you know, this is something to celebrate. You know, getting through an entire encyclopedia um, is a lofty goal to say the least, and you should be proud of yourself for sticking with it. Uh, I know we're only in the A's. So we've got a lot to go, but it's still exciting. I can't wait uh, to see what other words there are here, uh, what other names, places, you know, things I've never heard of. And, and I haven't heard of a lot of these uh, people, um, and some of these words are new to me. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm an avid reader, and still some of these words are new to me. So I hope you're having as much fun as I am. And uh, have a wonderful day, and until next time.